One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Even on a budget? Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns like relaxing the best thing about relaxing is how relaxing it is you are listening to Mist Apex Podcast we live F1 welcome to Mist Apex Podcast I'm your host Richard Reddy but my friends call me Spanner so Let's be friends. We've got a mailbag episode lined up for you today. We've got some of your questions, and predictably, they do cover some of the biggest news that's been flooding the F1 news sites and social media. So we will be talking super licenses, a little bit about the Silverstone general admission and ticket prices, just so I can have a little grumble grumble at the end. Uh, But loads of great topics to cover as well. And I have a great panel for you too. But first... I have to remind you that we're an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better halves. We aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we definitely are first. Stop emailing us. We are first. We are. We are. Well, we used to be, and that's enough. We are joined in the shed by Matt Two Rumpets. Hey, Matt. Super license points. I don't need no stinking super license points. How many super license points have you got? My dad's got like 55. He's got way more super license points than your dad. Hey, I've been cutting those things out of newspapers since the (laughs) 1950s, I want you to know. I found some in some cereal. We've also got young commentating talent, Chris Stevens. Hey, Chris. Hey, Spanners. My voice has just about recovered from what was a scintillating night of action in the Mist Apex iRacing F3 Cup. Go to Mist Apex Motorsport YouTube channel to check that out. Yeah, and you had to solo, you had to Iron Man, a single commentator, because Chris Catman Turner couldn't be bothered to come and help you. But it was really yeah. good. You did a great job. You brought those races to life, and I do recommend people put them on, if only as background viewing, just to hear and bathe in your commentary. Ah, oh, thanks, man. And from young talent to uh, the, the opposite of that, we've got our video guy, Steve Amy, Uncle Steve. Hey, Steve. How are you going? Um, Winter is disappearing down here. Summer's coming on and we're getting ready to burn. All right. Winter in Australia is like 
nearly the hottest day in the UK anyway. I've, I've heard you complain. You've gone, oh, we're down to 31 degrees. I've had to wear socks today. <laughs> yeah, it's been very cold winter this year, though. The coldest winter since I moved up here, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, then. Well, let's get on to the listener questions. Okay, Matt, you've been rummaging around in our mailbag. Why don't I make you IC in command of of mailbag questions? I, I assume we have a lot of Colin uh, Colin Herter, Colton Herter. What's his name? What was his name? I forgot. Colton Herter. Colton Herter. Still his name, as a matter of fact. No, I know, but like Colton to me doesn't sound like a real name. It sounds like a yeah. TV name. So when it came into my head, I was like, no one's called Colton. Yeah. Hang I, on, I, we've I, got a... We've got a, an iRacer called Colton. Yeah, I know, but that, that there was a bit of like, yeah, it's just the disbelief. It's like meeting I, I, an Australian called Bruce. Like if you meet a, an American that's called Chad or Colton, you're like, no, that's only off of the telly. But Colton Herter, Matt, why don't we run through some of the questions we've had on Mr. Herter? Okay, well, one of the nice things about doing the mailbag is that you get a lot of you get a very lot of questions on a certain subject and you know you can do a deep dive. Everybody's going to be interested in it. That's what we're all going to talk about. And we actually have we actually have four separate entries in our Super okay, License let's hear question let's hear program uh, here. So we're going to start with um, Ernst, who would simply like to know if a Super License can be taken away. Stephanie wants to know, is there a website that tracks points? Martin would like Martin Dooley would like our opinion as to whether or not other roofed series would work well as proving grounds for Formula One. Ian thinks that Super Lights is nothing about cashing in on American dollars rather than about how good Herta actually is. And I kind of agree with him on that. And then last of all, our friend Adam Deal would just like a simple explainer on what are the real rules for getting a super license. So perhaps we should start with that one. No, just answer all of the questions in quick succession in one go. No, it's a really, really interesting field. And for me, it has been fascinating because this is genuinely a topic where I don't think anyone in our group was an expert. So we're all genuinely just trying to learn about this stuff. And loads of times when we're arguing about amongst ourselves and on Twitter and in the Slack group, we'd like make a, yeah, well, what about this point? And then we'd go and like research it and go, no, I was completely wrong about that point. I, I had no idea. So who's, who's best placed now to give us a bit of a primer on what super license points are? Let's go, let's go with Chris. Okay, so the FIA super license is basically a quality assurance you have to go through certain series which offer a certain number of points towards your license. And you have to get, oh, what is it, 40 to be able to yeah. get uh, a, a super license. And then you can have a Formula One seat. Or 30 with force majeure. Like, I guess, if you missed yeah. a season because a, a sparrow landed on your face and then you tripped and fell, then they go, okay, we'll let you off. You were pretty close. And they can do that from 30 points onwards. There is like a contingency in it where I think you were allowed uh, to to have one under special circumstances. Like I think Alex Albon technically didn't qualify for a super license before he joined Formula One. Uh, And it was only after testing that he was actually granted it. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, basically you have to get 40 points within three of the previous four years. So basically you've got a dropped year, but you've got three years to accumulate those super license points. How do I get super license points? By winning championships, or at least finishing in the top three. That's where the big paying uh, positions uh, come in. 
Uh, if you're kind of outside of that, you're not really accruing the necessary points in anything other than Formula 2, um, I would say. So it, it's all about you know high scoring. And it, it, the ultimate aim is really to stop people uh, buying their way into Formula 1. So you have to have credible championship results to be able to do it. And it's to stop uh, people like Max Verstappen doing just one year of car racing and then coming into... Uh, Formula One. So you have to accrue a certain number uh, of points. In fact, that was the very point I was going to make. The latest change to the super license point was brought about by Max Verstappen coming and racing in Formula One and everyone saying he's not old enough. We need to change the rules. But I will say that there is a secondary point to the FIA super license. And that is to keep all the money and sponsors walking up the FIA ladder and not going to other series. Yeah. So this is my biggest gripe with the super license. I'm not going to hold any punches back here because go for it. The junior single seater ladder, particularly Formula 3 and Formula 2, already got made super expensive when it was made a spec championship it's the biggest lie in motorsport that spec racing is the cheapest because instead of going out and teams garnering their own deals with engine suppliers or time suppliers or chassis suppliers and whatnot they get given a fixed price which is ludicrously expensive and they say that's it you don't like it you don't compete so you have that problem already then the fia forces you to go into these championships to have any hope of being a formula one driver which are ludicrously expensive. A season in Formula 2 costs anywhere between one and a half to two million for the season, Euros, depending on which team you're with. If you want any hope of winning the championship, it's at least one and a half. Uh, yeah, okay. But we should say, Matt, you know, if when, when this controversy came up and, and Herta got refused the super license, the way people were reacting, I honestly thought that basically oh indycar wasn't counted towards having a super license the way people were were so upset but indycar gives substantial points for for the fia super license and chris is going to argue with me here but had colin herter <laughs> finished sixth eighth 20th and second in four championships that would have been enough to qualify he would have dropped his 18th or whatever he would have accumulated 10 points from his 6th and 8th, and he would have got 30 points from finishing 2nd. You know, along those lines. Or he could have won the championship, or he could have finished 3rd, 3rd, 4th. So a top-level IndyCar driver does qualify for an F1 Super license. If they accumulate enough points. The, the, the thing with Herta is, he has 32 points. Now, there may not be a force majeure. FIA may not want to consider it. But I think where a lot of this comes from is if you take a look at the actual table where they list the points, after third place, Formula 3 counts for more than IndyCar does. Formula 3 is a junior series. IndyCar is its own full-fledged championship with much higher level of competition in the top 10. And I think people are kind of rightfully... It's like it's making them a bit irate because... Okay. Well, as Zach Brown, as as Rossi said, there's no reason, there's no way you can say Herta isn't good enough to drive a Formula One car. So something's wacky about this. I not make no judgment on the over whether Herta is good enough to drive a Formula One car. I'll say the first thing that might generate emails, and it is a genuine question though, is what Formula One is an international sport. 
Indy, yes, it is its own thing and it's not a junior driver series, but it's a regional series. And it is kind of given the same respect as other regional series, even more if you look at things like Super Formula or some Asian Championships, Steve. So like, this is going to upset people, but isn't, isn't there some argument to go, well, it's probably a step up from IndyCar to F1? Oh, it's definitely a step up. I, I doubt whether, you, you know, trying to equate um, Indy to Formula 3 is fair. I think that no, there is yeah. more skill involved, you know, in driving in Indy at, at a reasonable level in IndyCar um, than is, you know, given at the moment. Um, those drivers, uh, you know, there are some drivers who have got lots of experience, have won lots of races. They might not have won the championship, but they've won a lot of races and they've had many years of experience. And I think that they could step across to Formula One. Um, I, I honestly think that uh, there has to be, you know, kind of a realignment of, the, the, you know, the, the high levels of open wheeler, you know, that is raced around the world. Um, sure, um, Indy racing is probably not you know, quite on the same par as Formula One, but it's closer than where it's been pegged at the moment. Well, I think we need to be careful when we're talking about, like, levels where we say, you know, it is competitive. It's a spec series after all. So the competition is high. It's also very uh, popular. But I think, you know, Chris, is it a factor that, say, the speed of an Indy car and what lap times it can do around a circuit is, equates more to F2 than F1? Yeah, but I don't think that's a factor because for me, IndyCar is a higher level than Formula 2 in that it's where professional drivers go to actually make a career out of racing where they are getting paid to race rather than paying to race. And that's for it it, it makes it a much more competitive thing. But what I don't like is that it's closed off. You, You have other series that are closed off in this system. And drivers that would be more than competent enough for Formula One in, say, the top level of the World Endurance Championship or in Formula E or other, you know, other series that are get, that get snubbed because they're not coming through this particular route. Steve, um, I agree with Chris that, that that we've got to open it up. You know, drivers that are in, uh, you know, the endurance series and are good drivers should have an opportunity to step across. Uh, and at the moment, it is totally closed. Um, I think if Nick DeVries gets a drive in Formula One um, next year, that's a good way to, yes. uh, you know, elevate Formula E and stop it from being the graveyard for ex-Formula One drivers. You know, suddenly he will have come from being um, mm. Formula E champion and step into Formula One, and that will open up another avenue of drivers being able to channel into the Formula One um, group. Matt, Formula yeah, well- E doesn't carry as much weight as the IndyCar series. It's FIA. It's, it fills the criteria that we were talking about before. It's its own thing. It's not a feeder series. It's not, you're not, it fulfills Chris's thing where you're getting paid to drive. You're not paying to drive. So, I mean, that's, that's quite a good comparison to say. Yes, I agree. I think Formula E should get more points. Having watched it firsthand, I can tell you it is a very highly competitive series. And because the car's performance tends to be so close together, unless you're Dragon Penske, then then you have the same thing that you get in IndyCar where a lot more of your result comes down to driver talent. And the point that I really wanted to make was you called Indy 
a regional series. I was, and if I was, we're just looking at where they race, <laughs> I was trying to provoke. I you. would highly <laughs> agree with you. Okay. However, if I look at where yeah, the know, racers are coming from, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it seems a bit more international these well, days. Well, it took a long time for you to to wind up and get angry about that. Uh, yes, I understand that it's international, but when I say it's regional, <laughs> I think it's it's fair. Like a lot of the drivers who are international came there. You know, from if you look at Grosjean and Ericsson, they had they 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 shot their shot at F one, and then, oh, and I don't want this to sound rude, but they failed into IndyCar and are doing sort of fine. It's not like they went through the system. The international element of say the feeder series into IndyCar, I'm imagining, is a lot more North American. You would think so, unless your name is Linus Lundqvist, Lundqvist or Rhinus VK. Yeah. Okay, so two. What about Scott McLaughlin? He came from being three-time supercar champion and is now doing great in IndyCar. Can't tell me he's not a talented driver. No, no, not at all. But my point there is, Steve, you're right. That is an Australian-grown talent that's then migrated over to IndyCar, whereas you know the, the F1 has an international ladder that goes into F1. IndyCar tends to, when you talk about its international element, is attracting drivers who've already shot the shot or developed in a different ladder chris well like we can go indycar regional championship but formula 2 is basically a regional championship as well it for europe primarily <laughs> races in europe and has a couple yeah, of races yeah, yeah, in yeah. the middle east <laughs> to keep things and well primarily to keep the promoters of those uh, particular events happy and what what's kind of grating about this at the moment as well is that we're all looking at the formula 2 field and seeing nothing spectacular like nobody's really on the cherry hook for 2023 cherry hook What's a cherry uh, hook? I don't know. I I've might never... have just made that up. But <laughs> well, okay, good. No, do you know what? from now on, that is a mistake. <laughs> phrase we use that all the time. So, so Chris, like you know, there are years where more drivers are on the cherry hook, um, but that you do get these non-cherry hook seasons. You know, where... now that you've said it, it sounds yeah. so ridiculous. No, no, doubling down, sticking with it. That's the title of the show, in fact. All right, great. No, but yeah, this particular season, I think the only driver who has an outside shot at a Formula One seat is Jack Doohan. And I think that is very unlikely and a very left field choice for Alpine. So I would, I think there are more potential F1 drivers in IndyCar at the moment than in Formula Two. Cherry Hook. So I think uh, our dear friend Chris has forgotten about Logan Sargent for the moment, but that's okay. Uh, he's not going to be happens. in Formula One next what? year. Come on. He just isn't happens in the heat of the moment what he's not going to be driving for williams with whom he's contracted if he has enough super license points you think they'll keep latifi instead no i think they'll go with another option like i think they're still desperately going to fight to have nick the free oh you think so well we shall see where nick lands given his uh mm. given given his dalliance with the uh red bulls i suppose but the other thing I wanted to say is that uh, I, I remember watching when Grosjean just started driving an IndyCar. He actually got beaten by this kid, Rhinus VK. I want to say Dutch, but if I'm wrong about that, please forgive me because it was over a year ago and I can barely remember what happened yesterday. But <laughs> okay. he, he, in interviews, basically said he chose to con- he chose to go to the United States and climb the IndyCar ladder, about which we can talk more yep, later. This is a good point, yep. Uh, because it was too expensive for him to compete in Europe, but he could afford to compete in the United States. Yeah, and yeah. So uh, this is the question I asked on Twitter, which is, as an American, Matt, and, a, you know, and I'm asking IndyCar fans who are kind of outraged, it feels like a slight, you know, like 
IndyCar has been disrespected because a well-rated, well-regarded driver from IndyCar is not has basically not been deemed good enough or worthy for F1. So that is an insult, and I see that insult. But do you really actually want, say, the F F1 to go right? any IndyCar driver who's done a season in IndyCar can, can drive an F1. It's completely fine. If a team wants them, you can have them because we respect IndyCar so much. Do you want that? Because you will essentially become a feeder series. Young European billionaires from the UK will start flooding the Indy lights or whatever, the feeder series, the, the USF 2000, will just be filled with like Francois Billion and, and, and all his mates. And and that is going to have an effect on American talent. Do you really, really want this? Or, or are you not just happy for the best and brightest of each series to be able to, to cross over occasionally? It's a long I'm question. Not su- yeah. I'm not suggesting any driver who's ever driven an IndyCar race is qualified or should be able to swap over. But I think it's clear when you've got someone with the accomplishment of Herta, the fact that he can't is maybe an issue that needs addressing. But what's, I do want to okay. respond to your point, if I go may, on, before yeah, we go do on. It. Which is namely into it. The very nice thing about the IndyCar ladder is that if you have $5,000 and a stupendous Aww. amount of talent, Aww. you can start at the bottom and work your way all the way up to an <sighs> IndyCar drive. You're guaranteed three races, one of them being the Indy 500, just by winning. You don't That's good. need to have the money or the sponsors, although they do hook you up as best they can along the way. Currently. Firstly, I'd like to express my disappointment that I neither have $5,000 or talent, so I'm not going to make <laughs> a late charge to do that. But that's the system as it currently is, and that makes sense commercially. What Once you start getting these supermarket billionaires bringing their kids over to start getting the seats and they and they start going well actually i mean we have got an, like basically a limitless budget we can offer you half of what it will cost us to be on the f3 f2 ladder money talks you know and you could find that that indy have you know the financial pressure to start accepting these drivers is overwhelming oh, so gone chris so so on herter's Kind of ability in his and, and cv uh, i'd like to know her to cv actually yes i mean he, he yeah. has a multiple indy card yeah. uh race winner and that in itself is is a great achievement because it is an incredibly competitive um series but what really was surprising to me i read it today and please correct me if i'm wrong on this but i do believe linus lungfist the indie lights champion has more super license points than he does and actually qualifies for one rather than herter who is an accomplished indycar driver which to me makes no sense whatsoever Yep, you're absolutely correct. He does. And it doesn't make sense, which is why mm. we're sitting here still talking about it, because yeah. it doesn't quite make sense. Well, the, not, reason, not- the reason I've given over so much of, of this program towards it is simply because like, I didn't know anything about it to start with. And I think a lot of listeners will be sitting here going, oh, I didn't know any of that either, <laughs> Chris. Well, well the, the super license in itself goes against what it's all doing, because we're talking about how mm. it's so expensive to do F2 and F3. So you have to be a very wealthy driver to get through to the top of that anyway, which is what you, they didn't want happen. They wanted to stop pay drivers yeah. getting in. Now it's pretty much exclusively pay drivers or incredibly well-backed drivers. Yeah. When we still have people like Nicholas Antifi and Nikita Mazepin mm. slipping through the cracks and it wanted to stop young drivers from getting in because Max Verstappen was 16 when he made his debut. And guess what? He's the best driver in F1 at the moment. I, I just want to make a general point on on what money buys you 
So <laughs> I had some people could saying to me, well, okay, the the indie lights or the USF 2000 or those feeder series, they won't take like personal money. They're running that series for their own reasons. And then there's sponsorships for people to move up. What the drivers who are currently competing in that might not have is the resources of, say, a stroll. And when you look at the training stroll had to get into F1, it was immense. They could literally go and buy a two-year-old Formula One car, hire Anthony Davison, who is like a, just a national treasure, to personally train him. And it's that kind of training and resource in sport that makes apparent meritocracies into actually elite, elite sports. So you might think, well, those seats will be safe because the American talent will still be fast. You, you might not know that you might not be able to compete against the amount of training and the amount of opportunity and track time and resources that, that I think probably exists more in Europe. And I might be wrong about that, Chris, but I do feel like it's just a bigger industry. In, in Europe, especially at the youth driver level, if you look at karting level and above. 100%. And this is why it was so attractive to like skip a step, you know, and why it, it, getting into F1 as quick as possible was a much more attractive option. Mm. We have multiple world champions from this century. Oh, go on. Yeah, do this. Skipped yeah. so many steps. Kimi Raikkonen list had them, list them. What, one or two mm-hmm. years of single from the Formula Renault level straight into f1 jensen button Mm. came in from british formula three not even a regional formula three series the national one and i think sebastian vettel came in like halfway through his uh his Mm. formula Renault 3.5 season as well and i'm sure there's another example i'm forgetting but it's very clear that age and experience actually when it boils down to it is less important than the raw talent of these drivers Okay, but the super license system, though, it will stop things like this very famous stories in soccer of like agents showing show reels of players who did like a couple of good games and tricking top teams into signing them. So obviously, it's a much smaller ecosystem. But you know, it's it's a checks and balances thing, Chris. It's uh, you do need some kind of system. Uh, but I think the main argument here is where should IndyCar fall into that system? Well- do we do we need a system? Was it really so awful before the super license system came into place? Were we just mm. having terrible Formula One drivers in the bar? I mean, I really don't think it was all that bad before the super license came in. Okay, but you could have a, a team pressured into having a driver nominated by their engine supplier who really isn't up to scratch and who would be a menace at the back of the grid map. Yeah, you could. And um, if memory serves, uh, back in the day, the, you could apply to the FIA for an exemption. And if you could provide sufficient evidence, they would allow your driver to race. And I think I like the idea of rethinking how the points are distributed in IndyCar, especially because it's certainly if you finish top 10 in the championship, you should be getting more points than an F3 top 10 finisher just because the cars are much closer together in performance and it requires a greater degree of driver skill to do that well over the course of a season last thing on this because this boils down to how much respect should indycar get and i've I've watched a, a few races and it looks fast it looks terrifying driving on an oval looks just insane like the amount of 
mental courage to get on an oval, do the practice, realise what it's all about and still do a race, that does require a little bit of a hat tip. But I think Lewis Hamilton has even said, like, nope, ovals, not a chance. I just wouldn't do that. I think Ricardo has said that as well. And don't a lot of drivers opt out of the ovals in the IndyCar series and only do the, the road track? So look, it's an amazing discipline, but it is absolutely a, a slightly different discipline to Formula One. They're, they're not trained. They're not doing the whole Pirelli tyre thing. It's a different discipline. So what I would like to say to everybody here now is let's take the best five indie drivers, put them in F1, take the best five F1 drivers and put them in Indy. What kind of things do we see, Steve? What do you think? I think we've probably find that uh, two of them would... Uh, you know, sit in the top 15 uh, drivers, you know, comparable to F1. Uh, and I think the others would take a little time. You know, the actual style of racing yeah. and the style of car uh, take some time to adjust to. Uh, and I think you're crazy if you don't expect that to happen. Um, I think that what would happen if you said to some of those IndyCar drivers, here you can go and give it a really good try in Formula One, I think that that would add uh, excitement to Formula One. I think so. I agree. Ex- I agree. Yeah. It, it would add excitement to them, to the drivers themselves, and would give them an added, you know, kind of level of let's really go do this. You know, we've got a chance that we've never had before. I mean, I, I think you've got to be sensible and, and make it some of the younger guys. The, the, the very oldest of the <laughs> IndyCar drivers are probably, you know, yeah. just hanging on the shirt tail at the moment. Well, the thing is, uh, uh, at the moment, what we've seen going to IndyCar, Matt, is the drivers who, you know, like Grosjean and Ericsson, who had a good shot, pretty talented, gone over to IndyCar. You know, we've not seen a Lewis Hamilton in his prime. You know, we're not going to see Verstappen go over there next season. No, we won't. So so that does, in a sense, make the comparison more difficult. But if you ask what would happen, I, I think Steve has the right of it. I think any top five, top 10 Formula One driver would be similarly placed in IndyCar. And I think if you reverse that equation, I'd ask, well, what team are we putting them in? Yeah. And then I then I go <laughs> yes, then I go. They do about as well as whoever is there. No, no, no. We send them to Williams, and that proves that IndyCar is definitely rubbish. <laughs> um, so, actually, my opinion on this is that I, I think I think they're probably more different disciplines than than we think. You know, and I'd, I'd love to to know you know people who've got more in depth knowledge of both those series, but I think it is probably more like moving between rugby and NFL than we think it is more like moving between cricket and baseball than we think it is you know it's all hitting a a ball with a stick it's all catching a, a ball and, and throwing it and running around i think we're probably underestimating just how different those skills are I, I think the top five drivers in formula one go over there take a long time to get used to it don't necessarily dominate it's such a different discipline again i think you bring the the top five drivers you put them in the top five teams from indy uh, you put them in the top five teams in, in F1, I think they will struggle similarly. And, and I wonder, Chris, if ultimately that's why the feeders, the points for the super license are graded as they are. F2 and F3 get more points because they are much more relevant to F1. Maybe. I mean, I still think a big part of it is to force drivers to go a particular route. You think it's money? It, 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 it came in around the time when they were completely rebranding the um 
the, the, the racing ladder by renaming it you know, Formula 2 and Formula 3 and revitalizing and reshaping the, the way regionals, um, regional F3 series work, right down to their involvement in national Formula 4 championships from karting as well. So I, I think it was to make the, the racing ladder a, a much more elegant solution. Right. So I will start by saying the biggest singular difference from IndyCar to Formula One has to be management of the ERS system. And you don't get that in any of the feeder series in the FIA. Having said that, I have no problem with F2 being the premier series leading to F1. You race on the same tracks, you're with the teams, you get exposed to the culture. But what might need to be rethought, especially in light of commercial possibilities, is the ability of independent world championships or regional championships, such as IndyCar, drivers who prove themselves might need to be given the opportunity to move when the opportunity mm -hmm. presents yeah. itself. And that will make Formula One an even yeah. more international series. And I'd hate for that opportunity to get lost in the technical details. To be clear, in case anyone thinks I'm like anti-American, F1 needs an American driver soon, as soon as possible. Get the right guy in, get that American fan base fully solidified so that people can continue doing F1 podcasts. That's the sole reason that we need to get F1 drivers in. And that's why we've um, a good half an hour chat on that, Matt. But I, I enjoyed it. I feel like I was learning that entire time, which is great. But we've got loads of feedback in our listener email. I'm going to play Steve's fancy bumpers to give you time to find one. Hello, here at Mr. Apex Podcast. Uh, we do do some additional content. It's not better but we do waffle on about things like our midlife crises and how best we should spend them. You don't want to get stuck in a midlife crisis involving Lycra. Don't do it. Don't go to road racing. That's the worst midlife crisis. You want to plan your midlife crisis properly. And that's the kind of thing we discuss on our patron-only doom-scrolling podcast. We also have a great slack forum which you can join at certain patron tiers as well so consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash missed apex in general i would like to say i've really enjoyed the interactions i've had with people this year i have had some raging debates some passionate debates and some real good back and forths uh, in my replies on twitter and the dms and in our facebook group i do love that just be warned i'm not like a career media guy so if you come at me with like a weird aggressive snoopy attitude i don't go hmm that's so interesting uh, tell me more i tend to go i tend to match your energy snip back and then eventually block you so please do come and chat to us all of us at matt pt 55 at chris on racing we've got to get steve into twitter we've got to tell him what it is first he'll be very very shocked when he discovers what it is and me at spanners ready and and uh, find us on facebook as well we do love having a discussion all we ask is that you be uh, a little bit polite and if you're not don't be surprised if we have a little bit of a, a snip back but also follow the show at missed apex f1 on twitter also all right on with the mailbag matt what have you found in your sack um excuse me i said what email would you like to address next there we go um i you will not be happy to hear this Oh. But after the super license, we had the most questions about Ferrari. Okay, okay, okay. Let's do it. So um, I think we'll start with um, Alistair, who, who wants to point out to us that he actually paid the bar tab for us in 2019 when we went karting. He did. So. He did. We were at Buckmore Park, and we just had this sudden mystery announcement from, from Marcia behind the bar who said, 
we've had X money put behind the bar and it was wonderful. Thank you. Stuff like that is just incredible. And, and um, he would very much like to know, um, do you think the truth of what Ferrari did with their 2019 engine will ever come out? Not like tomorrow, but maybe a decade or a generation or a century from now. Will we ever <laughs> find out what they were up to Ooh. with that power unit? Uh, Chris, I think you're the, the right person to go to for this. Everything yeah. is conspiracy theory until, you know, you've got a Mark Priestley style book that comes out about yeah. the 2007 series. This is exactly uh, what I was going to say. It's going to come out in someone's book mm. at some point or like 20 years down the line. If podcasts are still a thing, you'll have some guy <gasps> from Ferrari being like, ah, yes, we did this. We definitely cheated. Here's the proof. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, uh, no, I think secrets secrets are never in Formula One for forever. Mm. Um, eventually, they tend to get exposed one way or another. Uh, but, that, that, Steve, one of the, the issues I've been having with people online is, and it, it did happen a lot with the, the Toro Rosso thing. Toro Rosso, there I go again, uh, sounding old. Al- Alpha Tauri stuff is that if something sus happens, I think it's reasonable to kind of go, hang on a minute. Because F1 has kind of been, you've been watching F1 a lot longer than I have. Quote, unquote, cheating is, is <laughs> so part of the sport. Well, the whole sport is premised on we push things as far as we can go. You know, we, the, 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 form, the FIA put out a set of rules and engineers go to a huge extent to, you know, push them and push them and push them. There's a very fine line between pushing it to the extreme and going that one millimetre further that makes yeah. it cheating. And engineers aren't necessarily known for having the best moral judgments in the world. But no, uh, no. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I've worked in like defence contracting, and it's all about the requirements that people set out. And sometimes you look at like a customer's requirements about, oh, it must have this, it must have this, and you go, I could drive a bus through those legal clauses. And and it's the same in 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 Formula One. And I wonder, Steve, though, where's your outrage limit? Like, what what do you class as? Oh, you kind of. You snuck one in or, or oh, that was cheating. So, for example, in uh, in Britain, we don't like players overacting when they get taken down. Well, you know, when they get a foul. In Italy, if you fool the referee into giving a penalty, that is seen as good play. That's good football. Well done. You tricked the referee. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Uh, yeah. <clears throat> I don't mind a team or an engineer or a driver individually pushing the bounds on an existing um, regulation or way of doing things. I do draw the line at stuff like uh, engineering your teammate to crash into a wall so that, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. you can win the race and have a better chance at winning the championship. That's just out-and-out out cheating. <laughs> doing things that are technically slightly different, I think, comes into a, you know, a, a greyish area that you need to arbitrate in order to be able to say, is it a, an out-and-out out cheat or has this person, organisation or whatever, just pushed the regulation further than anybody else has managed to yet? Uh, let's go Chris then, Matt. I, I liken it to the 10% safety buffer you get for speeding. <laughs> if, you're doing, if you're doing 54 in a 50 zone, you, can you are technically speeding, <laughs> but you're going to get away with it. Yeah, and, and, and if you get pulled over... You can kind of you can go. Well, I, honestly, I thought I was doing that, and and you can sort of explain yourself. So if it's exactly. a fifty and you're doing, if you're doing fifty five, you go. Oh, really? I I could swear it was. A, I set my cruise control at fifty two. But if you're doing seventy, you know you've got no you've got no defence. Uh, Matt, exactly. Matt. Yeah. Well, uh, without meaning to cast aspersions um, on Red Bull, I think they give us an excellent example of both sides of that singular coin. Um, we all know um, last year that their rear wing flexed pretty tremendously, but oh, legally, yeah. and so, but then the FIA stepped in and said, we're going to set new limits on this, but that's absolutely fair. That's a perfect example of, yeah. them, of them using the materials and the rules and pushing as far as they can to gain maximum advantage. In fact, I'd argue they're flappy um, upper element on the rear wing suggests that they may still be doing that in ways that no one has talked about yet but that's for another show perhaps with summers flappy upper element was my something something cover band in high school anyway i my favorite kind of rule break is the one where they do a thing the fia doesn't like it and they go oh that oh i suppose that is actually technically okay but okay, but you can't do it anymore and no one else can that's my that's probably the best rule break yeah so we're talking now like das or yeah, Frick yes. or the f duct if you want to go back a ways but what red bull also did with their front wing uh, a few years ago and they finally got <laughs> oh, in yeah, for yeah, it yeah, because yeah. i think someone they actually had a little mechanism the one that that changes the angle of the front wing and at high speeds it would just flop over yeah. and completely stall the front wing getting rid of a whole bunch of drag. And that was flat out illegal, according to the rules. They only got away with it because they were never caught doing it till someone ratted them out. Okay. And so to me, those are, those are your bright lines right there. Okay, so great example was we heard from the Lotus CEO, Matthew Carter, here on this show that in 2014, it was something like the, the, the front wing had to be a, a certain height, but the support would mysteriously break every time that the Lotus started the race. Therefore, it would mysteriously break and they would benefit from having a, a lower front wing. Yeah? But they're, yeah. they're thinking, and Matthew Carr was brilliant at saying that, which was, well, I guess we only have to explain it when we get caught. We can go, oh, no. Oh, I can't believe it. And then from then on, they could conform with that rule. Like, Steve, is that cheating? Where does that fall on your moral compass? 
Um, I think that's exploiting the the, the regulation. I don't think, you know, I think it's okay for them to exploit it, but I think as soon as, you know, someone picked up on it and said, hey, guys, this is just outside the bounds of what we really meant, then it needs to be arbitrated and policed and, you know, they can't do it anymore. But don't... Don't blame them for trying to push the rules. That's what this game is about. That's what makes Formula One an interesting That's you know, interesting. concept. I would have thought that that one was like an out-and-out out cheat. Like that is, no, that's the, no, no oh, I don't okay. think so. Chris? I think it also depends how, uh, how public you are as a, as a team or how well you're doing, pretty much, because... Teams like Red Bull, Ferrari, Mercedes are going to be under constant scrutiny from each other. And no disrespect to Matthew Carter and his Lotus team, but that car finished, what, ninth in the championship? No one was really saying they've got a performance advantage somewhere. Yeah, true. Um, I I think, you know, the Ferrari example from the emailer, thank you very much for your your email. I, I think that one... That is, there was quite a big, I think that one goes beyond loophole if what allegedly has been alleged is allegedly correct. Um, and that was circumventing like a very specific thing, which was we need you to only have this certain fuel flow. And, and that's like a strict rule. They were avoiding being detected. It's very different to something like the Red Bull fuel flow cheat in 2014. They did this, they did a brilliant fuel flow cheat where basically once it was past the sensor the tube was flexible enough to allow pressure to build up so that you had kind of a flexible reservoir of fuel and then when you hit the throttle you had more fuel available but the flow to that point was less now to me that was was just genius like yeah you you did the rule we'd never ever unflowed more past your sensor than you determined that was the rule that was a brilliant cheat Definitely still a cheat, though. <laughs> but the, the, the Ferrari one seemed a little bit more like, no, this is a, a deliberate attempt to allegedly circumvent the rules, Matt. Yeah, they, they allegedly we're, got we're covered, around we're the, the mm-hmm. measuring of, of certain parameters of the engine very cleverly, I will add. And so points to yeah, them yeah. for that. But it was an intentional evasion uh, of an FAA measurement. Whereas the Red Bull that you referenced on the, I think it was the high, on the high side, high pressure side of the fuel injector, simply took advantage of there's no measurement on the other side of this. So they didn't evade any measurement to create that. It's a very small, but I think important detail. Okay. Anyway. Well, I think we're going to move on with our mailbag. That was really, uh, that was a very, very interesting a, like a tangent that we took around like how we feel about cheating in general. And whilst Matt rummages around in his sack, I've got a couple of things to say. I'm going to give a, a shout out to another F1 podcast. I don't normally do this, but I had a lovely time speaking to my new friends at the Red Flag podcast. And I was a guest there for ooh, it was 90 minutes. They let me go on and on and on. And I believe that will be released on Monday the 19th of September. So why not go and uh, check them out? Very different kind of show to what we do here on Missed Apex Podcast. Um, It's like the American version of For F1's Sake Podcast, I would say. I think it is worth checking them out and seeing if you like what they do. All right, good. Time to press another button. 
All right, Matthew. Do you get Matthewed a lot? Occasionally. Do you? Are you in trouble? It's my government name. Oh, is it? I'm the same with Richard. Whenever I hear Richard, I'm like, "Uh uh-oh, I best pay attention. Someone, I I have to pay a bill, or I didn't pay a bill, or tax is due. When you hear Matthew, it's bad news. Christopher! I bet Christopher's bad news for you. Always. Yeah. It's like, that's like you forgot, like, your sister's birthday, or you were meant to go to a family celebration and you didn't. I mean, I have no problem not going to family celebrations. I don't like them very much. Okay, fair enough. Stephen, when you get... Stephen! Stephen! Why are your flip-flops left out? They're all sandy, and they've been out there for four months, and they've got dingo turd on them. (laughs) The only person that calls me Stephen is Jane. And I listen. Everybody else calls me Steve. And the thing is, my wife knows that I stand to attention for, for... And it's always in this tone. It's not like Richard. It's, Richard? It's like that. You know, yeah, yeah, with that little... Richard, I'm curious as to why this inexplicable scene in front of me that has been caused by you has occurred and you will be required to give me a detailed explanation. So please, please do call me Spanners or Richie at the very least. Matt, Matt, Matty, Trumpets, Matty R, Matty T, what is next in your mailbag? Well, um, we could talk more about Ferrari, but I want to answer this question because... After my own style, it is a three-parter from uh, Jack Alston. Okay, here we go. But I think it'll be a good one. Um, Question number one, should F1 be doing more to increase affordability for the average consumer? Question two, has the sport, not the teams, but the sport itself stopped innovating from watching? And he's wondering about the integration of more modern technology. And finally, after my own heart, a tech question. Why exactly was engine development frozen? Okay, so... Oh. Well, the third one's easiest. Okay, go, go on then, Chris. Smack, go. <laughs> I, I was actually going to say, the third one's the least interesting. I don't care. We did it to appease Porsche Red Bull, and now they're not, they're not coming anymore, and no. like, why do we even bother? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't done to appease um, uh, Porsche. It was done to appease Red Bull, yeah. though, because they're yeah. like, oh, we've got no manufacturer support for the next four years. And they go, oh, fine, you just leave it as it is until 2026 then. That is it. But I will point out that we've had these engine freezes before in the latter years of most engine regulations, including yeah. the VH that preceded these. Okay. So I think that was relatively simple. The second question on there, I think we'll take a deep dive into that. And then we will talk about the affordability because I'm very, very angry about all the, the Silverstone stuff. And I, I think lots of people, I'm, I'm hardly alone in that. But we'll, I think we'll talk about the, the innovation one first. Chris, is that all right? Yeah, yeah. So I th- I read that question. I think mm. uh, they they like referenced a lot of the TV technology as well, sure, including like absolutely. the drones. Remember after Barcelona, we had a good old whinge about how appallingly awful that drone shot no, was. No, no, no. But, but I was very clear to say, let's not whinge too much because they're innovating pedal cam. Helmet cam. Dude, you are on my level because I was told after Budapest, oh yeah, they used that drone again. And it was like used all through the weekend. It's like, I, it was seamless. You didn't didn't even even notice it. Exactly, exactly. It was Uh, brilliant. Steve, you need to chip in on this one. Well, firstly, pedal cam is not a new innovation these days. It's just the return of something that they had quite a long time ago. Supercars has been doing it since 18 dickety seven. No, they actually tried it in Formula One cars yeah. for a little while, and then 
I don't think the camera technology was up to it in those days. It's good, so, but it's the wrong way round. I need to see it from the well. Like, I, I agree with that. Yeah. I agree totally. Yeah. I think you need to see it from the driver's you know side, not from behind <laughs> yeah. the pedal. Yeah, uh, that's quite weird. I think it was just easier <laughs> to put it in there. I think they're trying to you know innovate in all sorts of media areas at the moment. Uh, there isn't a lot more that you can do with the technology that we've got. We've got miniature cameras. They're trying those in the helmets. Yeah. And they will, and they've improved those this year when uh, earlier in the year they were, you know, really shaky and yeah. bad. They've obviously got some kind of stabilization going on. Uh, and they look good. I think that they are trying um, to innovate. I think the technology, uh, hasn't opened up any new avenues for them for a little while yet. Well, I I like the visor cam. I like where they're going. And I think I just sent you, if I'm not mistaken, Steve, an example of a gyro cam on the Ferrari showing the banking at Zanvoort. Yeah, and it's nice that they've caught up with um, uh, MotoGP <laughs> bikes after 10 years. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I guess the point is they're not, they haven't stopped putting new ideas. Oh, no, that's true. They haven't. And evaluating. And so I think the news on that is going to be good. They want to innovate so that they yeah. equal other yep. sports so that they make more money. So if, yeah, the, if the, I was the problem, the problem with those, uh, with the gyro cam for cars is this Zanvoort's about the only uh, track that we race on where you get to really see yeah, the result of the gyro yeah. one. On a normal flat course, it makes little or no difference whether it's gyroed. Uh, Connor in our patron chat group says we should have a, a fuel flow cam. Yeah, I agree. Let's do that. And can we backdate it to 2018, 2019, if possible, please, Chris? Yeah, I mean, my point was going to be about the gyro cam uh, as well. So in terms of the television, I think they're still pushing the boundaries. In terms of the cars, yes. are they pushing the bounds still? I what? mean, you could argue that the hybrid technology came in way after other series had adopted it. But has Formula One pushed the boundaries further in a shorter sure. amount of time? Lots I would to say on yes. that. I just want to double check, Steve. Uh, we had quite a few broadcasting points, I think, before we move on. Uh, yeah. Yes, I reckon the next um, innovation I want to see is drivers being able to talk to each other. <gasps> oh, hang on a minute. Now, now then, now then, now then. We've been experimenting with that kind of stuff at the Missed Apex karting event. And obviously, we do have that with our iRacing events where you can choose to be in the group lobby or you can choose to be in a private channel with just your team. Uh, I obvious. I think it's obvious that in reality, that's a terrible idea. It would be kind of cool maybe in practice, Chris, if they had a session where you had open, open comms. It's technologically possible. I mean, I think it would be great in races if you have two drivers clattering into each <laughs> other and you could just get the direct response. That would be... That'd be great, but yeah, no, I think in in theory, great, but in reality, not so much. I don't know if you ever have watched Texas Hold'em Poker on TV. Yes, yes, but I have. Why is that televised? No, one, to what? watch one player. Why? Of course, it's amazing. That's why. To watch one player talk their way right through another player. Say, can you imagine being behind someone and just like, I'm coming, mm. I'm coming. Go I know you're going to miss that. Google corner. Kevin Hart, Google Kevin Hart playing Texas oh. Hold'em poker and just getting in everyone's head. And he's not <laughs> the best player at all, but he just like fully Kevin Hart's it and like flummox top players. It's, it's really it would, good. It, it can't happen. It, it was, it's far too, uh, too, it's like sledging in cricket 
And, in, you know, in cricket, it works very well. But how many times in cricket, Steve, have we seen batsmen just been absolutely psyched out uh, 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 and, and get themselves out because the wicketkeeper's been chirping behind them and the Australians are the kings of sledging? <laughs> yeah, I can't deny that one little bit that happens often. <laughs> and I was being tongue-in-cheek about the drivers course, talking yeah. to each other. But, boy, it'll be f- Oh, Steve, you're like a you're a producer on this show, and you're the one doing naughty words. I've got to edit that out now. Don't worry, naughty Steve. But in Australia, oh by the way, I should say in Australia you have much like you don't mind swearing at all. We did have an advert go out uh, that only went to our Australian listeners that had expletives in it, and we decided not to like withdraw it or get too upset about it because Australians have different standards. But if you were offended by that, I do, I do apologise. Um, so do I. Yeah. But, uh, but things like uh, speaking to the driver, Johnny Herbert had a conversation with Nico Rosberg, I think, in 2015, and they experimented with that as a, a post-race interview. Formula E ha- have done that, and I think W Series experimented with in-car interviews. And I thought they worked very well, but I, I, I think I'm alone, Steve. People didn't really like them. Um, I think they work well. I think the very best piece of participant-to-participant uh, participant communication I ever saw was in the 80s. It was um, the Bathurst 1000. They had the leader of the Bathurst 1000 talking to the captain of the America, Australian America's Cup yacht race thing that was happening in Perth. So we had these two guys involved in different races one in a car, one in a yacht. They were both yeah. you know, high little things, and they talked to each other. It was the first time that that had ever been tried, and I sat there gobsmacked that anybody was able to do it. It was brilliant. So I think that's the very best piece of participant to participation, participant to participant communication I've seen. No, that's fine, Steve. I'm just still recovering. I'm I'm just so sad that this is the first episode that I encouraged my children to listen to live, and you know, and and what. What's no, I didn't really. Chris. <laughs> what if what if we had celebrities talking to drivers after the races? Oh god. Say like Steve. Will oh, Smith, and he can tell them that that's how he done told them to do it. Yeah, and then reach into their car and slap them in the face. Sounds great. Allegedly. Oh no, we all saw it was literally on telly. Yeah. <laughs> we, don't need it. we don't need to cover ourselves on this one. The lawyers are fine. Yeah, they're fine. We saw it all. Okay. Um the Chris, where you tried to take us, and I, I do apologize, I just know that knew that Steve had another point. Um no, that's fine. When it comes to innovation in cars, actually the question I nearly tweeted out earlier was what technologies could we just wholesale remove from F1 and it not really have an effect? Like, we're already lo- losing the MGU... H. Yeah, H. Well, I was, I was getting to that. You didn't have to tell me. I was getting there. But, you know, there's a whole technology that just got taken away. Like, we could take away maybe half of the, the stuff there. And I guess we would need to stay quicker than IndyCar so that we could keep rejecting their drivers wholesale. That's not going to be difficult. Because yeah. It's not so much to do with the power, though, is it? It's to do with the downforce. Yeah, yeah, and the lap. But we want to maintain the lap time. People did get upset when it got down to to GP two devils. Yeah. But that doesn't mean we want to like just strive for infinite lap time. But there's a lot of technology that we that they could lose. What in terms of the engines, or in terms of other I don't know. Things? Like, I mean, do, you, do you need do you need DRS? Do you need a button that cools well, the engine? Do you need a the the drinks dispenser? What, what yes. can you get rid of? Yeah, yeah, I yes, know. you need a drink dispenser. I wouldn't class DRS as like a technology because it's not used to really make the car go faster. It's a band-aid overtaking 
um solution more than anything else that then got like they then introduced movable aerodynamics into road cars for that exact same uh reason on like the more like high performance hypercars um that you see on the road from like ferrari or mclaren or, or things like that in terms of the other technologies that are coming into formula one i think they're so minuscule and under the radar and uh invisible mm. that we get this sense that formula one isn't going anywhere when really when you look at it they are pushing the technology of the the hybrid systems more and more every single year synthetic fuels obviously a big talking point at the moment as well that formula one i think every once in a while does a media campaign around but doesn't do anything to consistently yeah. tell the story of what's happening with developing technologies we've got some good uh, we've got some good suggestions in the live chat uh morgan is saying side pods just ask mercedes oh remember when that seemed like a good idea let's hope that w14 has side pods i'm thinking side pods pretty good uh let's see uh someone asks is latifi a technology no um uh, <laughs> <laughs> rear view mirrors could we do without them well, uh, i guess the meme would be that lance stroll uh, could do without them tim rudd's suggestion of, of just getting rid of wings I, I love that i love that suggestion get rid of wings like across the whole like ladder but i think the aerodynamics is such an integral part of the industry and the fabric of f1 i just cannot imagine that they would ever like dismiss and fire the half of every aero team by getting rid still- of wings You'd still have an aero team for like ground effects and that they just all be pushed on to how do we generate downforce through a floor rather than through a wing. Mm. And and Martin uh, makes the suggestion, Matt, that all invisible tech should be banned. And I think that's that's the core of a lot of people's complaints is we can't see the thing that makes that car fast. We can't see the thing that made the difference today. Yeah, well, it's actually a really unfortunate side effect of these new regulations that have worked well to make the racing closer. And we certainly enjoyed seeing them on racetracks is that a lot of what is making the difference isn't visible anymore because it's not just aerodynamics. They changed so much about the suspensions as well. And that's really adjusting the car track to track through the suspension and the balance is a lot of what's making these weird circuit specific differences that that we see and we know like oh how red bull's 10 seconds faster oh look ferrari's now faster than red bull a lot of it is down to the track and the ability of the teams to adjust these hidden bits of the car to use the tires and their own concept best well of course Red Bull's massive performance gains have come from trimming uh, trimming the weight down. They went from being 20 kilos overweight to now pretty much being on the weight limit. So are we saying that you can't do anything to change the weight of your car? We will never improve anything if we never do that. Minor point, Red Bull's improvement is all down to Max Verstappen. Max, Max, Super Max. If you want to leave us an iTunes review, specifically in the Netherlands, just go on your iTunes, search for Mr. Apex Podcast, leave us a little five-star review. Hashtag Supermax. Matt. Um, it's not just that. They've spent an enormous amount of time and effort working on the throat to the floor so they can better balance the car. That's the other side of it. The weight is responsible for the lap time, but they've spent all their currency 
working, being more gentle on the tires. Let's just call it that. But Weedsy in the chat has the best example of tech we can use, which is let's get rid of some of the buttons on the car. You have settings for mid, entry, exit, high, low speed diff. Mm. Maybe we could simplify <laughs> some of that and make it a little more of a driver series again. Do you remember, was it Baku? It was definitely Hamilton Rosberg. Yeah. And they, for one season, they banned oh. driver to team communications. Oh, gosh, yes. And they sent poor Lewis out with the wrong <laughs> setting on his dial. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Rosberg with the right one. And they, he changed it, but he knew what to change it back to because yeah. he'd been on the right thing to start with. And yes. Lewis was like, I'm going to try every one. And the engineers were like, no, please, Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Please don't blow up our car. <laughs> yeah. But Hamilton was sitting there just going, well, if you don't tell me what to do, I'm just going to press every single button here and t until I find the right solution. And the engineers sitting there going, well, if you do that, you will break the car. But they couldn't do anything. And that actually illustrated a, a couple of things. A, that that rule didn't work. It was public pressure to go, oh, well, there's too many instructions. The, the, the engineers are driving the car for them. But they, I think there was a point. It's just that you couldn't take away the engineer advice within the technology the, that we have. And, and there was a quote. Was it from Andretti? I don't know if it was from Andretti. Yeah. Was, was it, okay. I think you know the quote I'm going to say, which I is do. that I would rather go back to IndyCar because I want to drive a car, not press buttons. Yeah. That's the one. Uh, Steve, then Chris. Uh, wasn't uh, the situation in the late 80s, early 90s that – um, engineers were controlling all of the element, technical elements of the car uh, from yeah. the pit wall, the ride height, you know. With Williams, uh, with Williams yeah. Uh, uh, and they had to ban that because, really, the driver was just steering it and the engineer was setting it up for every corner that he came to. On that, um, the point. team radio ban, not the outright ban, but obviously the engineering speak as well. I think what drove that as well was... Uh, I can't remember who Nico Rosberg's engineer was, but he would get on the radio to him and say, oh, by the way, uh, Lewis is uh, taking yes. this line and then uh, yeah. getting on the power two tenths earlier than you at this particular corner. Everyone got outraged at that, completely forgetting about the fact that as soon as Nico parks up in the garage, that's the kind of data he's going to be looking at anyway. All they've, all they've done is streamline the process. Yeah. So uh, just wanted to highlight what a utterly ridiculous rule that was yeah i think you, you're never going to stop that with teammates matt I and mean, we've both benefited in in sim racing where we've had the traces from faster drivers inputs mm -hmm. and you can you can just copy it you go oh uh brad broke hit the brakes uh, and softer but earlier and you go, you just do that same thing and then you watch your sector time go down so that's i think that's a normal part of, of having a teammate yeah, in fact, it's one of my favorite all-time treasured Formula One memories at Barcelona with Rosberg and Hamilton battling for the win and their engineers spying on each other's oh. side of the garage and radioing in ERS changes is like literally, it's not just the driver, but the whole team fighting well, each other right trying well. to win the race. It was just spectacular. And then they immediately banned it. <laughs> but I, I also, he's like, nope, 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 none of this. <laughs> uh, yeah. And into, for, the, for the health of the team, that's not good. Yeah, but exactly. It being a truly team sport and, you know, those relationships with like Felipe Massa and um, why is the name suddenly disappeared from me? Help, 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 help. What, Alonso? No, Felipe Massa's engineer. Oh, oh, Rob Smedley. Rob Smedley. Smedley. There we go. Brilliant. And this relationship with Lewis Hamilton and 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 uh, Bono. You know those kind of things are, are magic. You know that's a great story. That's the relationships movies will be made about 
in in future years. So I kind of do like that team element, and it exists whether we see it or not. Um, the last part, though, Matt, of whose question was it? This would be our friend Jack Alston. Oh, thank you, Jack. So we've got far enough into the, the end of the show that I feel like we can have a little bit of a, a moan and a whinge. So what was the first part of his question about, about Silverstone? Should F1 be doing more to increase affordability for the average consumer? So Formula One is a business, and I'm sure people will raise that point and we'll talk about the business side and commercial side of running a racetrack and running a series. I just wanted to, to kind of speak for 10-year-old Richie who was sat at home watching those Grand Prix and loving them and being, you know, I don't want to get into the four Yorkshiremen of like, you had an all in a road, you were lucky. Oh, we were huddled in corridor. You know, I don't want to get into all that, like, woe is me, violins playing. But I was at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder in the UK and going things like going to Grand Prix tracks were, were already expensive. I was priced out of going to... Grand Prix, and when when you think like growing up, it was the sport I loved the most, and I would I the moments where I could go karting, the endurance league that I was able to enter for one year, the times I got to do arrive and drive were some of the most special memories of my entire life. And motorsport is expensive, and it was unobtainable really for for a kid like me growing up, and and I dreamed of you know growing up, I'm going to get a job, and then I'll be able to go and do all those things, and I think I've managed. You know, two occasions, two single days where I've managed to go to a Formula One event at Silverstone. But a lot of people were already priced out. Now the prices have gone up and I could accept prices going up. It's in higher demand. Higher demand means higher prices. I can see that. So it's it's very much still aspirational. And as a grown up with my own money to spend, uh, I then had a family to think about. And it's a selfish thing for me to then buy those tickets. Now it comes to the the TV side of it, where you say, well, it's a TV sport then. I'd kind of made my peace with that. And you've heard me on many occasions being very upset at people talking about the Monaco Grand Prix and going, yes, it might be boring for you plebs at home, but you just simply have to be there. How can you possibly judge the Monaco Grand Prix if you're not sipping Chardonnay at, uh, at turn one? I have accepted, yes, F1 has been largely a TV sport for me in the past. And then F1 sells the rights to F1, to Sky TV. Sky TV, it's a great production, what they do for Sky F1. Can't fault it at all. But it took that from a license payer's free-to-air, like an NHS-type thing, to a private medical care-type thing. I, I then had to sign up to Sky TV and pay whatever it is, ridiculous amounts a month, for one channel, literally one channel. And, and so, luckily, as a grown-up, I wasn't priced out. But me, as a young lad... In the, in the 90s, watching F1, if that had been the case, I literally would have been priced out of watching Formula One. I would not have this lifelong passion I would have had for Formula One. My, life, my passion for boxing, for example, got completely taken away. A little bit later, for cricket, completely taken away by that pay-to-view. But this latest episode from Silverstone and what they've done, they haven't just increased prices. I think they really have just ripped the soul out of the F1, going and seeing it in person, fan experience. And the thing that got it for me was not just that the prices increased with demand. I understand business-ish to an extent. I have sympathy for the fact that it costs money to run a Grand Prix. I can even understand dynamic pricing. 
the fact that if I look for an airplane ticket at various times, the price might be different whether I book it right before the event, whether I'm looking at a premium ticket or, or a premium date. The fact that people were queuing for hours, thinking they had one price, waiting for the system to update, and then they would suddenly be faced with a much higher price. And they've just invested five hours sitting there. And you can't, it doesn't just hold. You have to, once it appears, you have to click within five minutes or you lose it and you have to start again and you have to join the queue again. So you've put all that emotional investment in and then you go, right, well, will I pay more? I've, I was already actually stretched for, for the prices that I saw. And now I have to decide whether that is a sunk cost. So they are feeding on the sunk cost fallacy, the sunk cost mental block that all of us will have and you, go, and you make a decision well I've, well I've waited this long so i'm going to pay and that to me feels like extortion and i and i'm i am upset i think it's a good question and i feel upset about how much f1 has been taken away from me as a viewer i've spoken for a long time i do <laughs> apologize but i think you can tell i'm very passionate about that and, and I, you tell me i'm wrong i'm fine You're at me uh, at spanners ready email me spanners at mistapex.net chris but i think as formula one's popularity has grown it over the last couple of years because it really has shot up yes. lately yes uh it, it's becoming more of like a sort of touristy thing to do and i can i can almost sort of mirror it to me looking to take a holiday this year my one and only holiday that i'm going to be taking this year and i don't really feel like going to another country uh, and I just want to do a staycation and just, you know, book a place for a few weeks. But the amount of money to to do that just for three or four days is ludicrous. And everyone's telling me, you're better off <laughs> going to another country and taking a holiday there in some resort. And it's becoming the same with Grand Prix. You are going to be better off going to Barcelona or Bahrain or just somewhere else. Uncle Steve, was that, was that, it was too much that ran a little bit. I could feel it as I was doing it, but I'm upset a bit. Well, you have every right to be upset. I saw that and was just disgusted at what was going on. Um, I think that they're just flagrantly ripping, um, you know, the fans off, people who want to go there. I totally agree with you. I understand that, okay, ticket prices will be more this year than last year because more yes. people want them this yeah, year. Yeah, I can accept but that. not, as you say, sitting in the queue waiting to buy your ticket and then find it's $100 more when you get to the you know, press the buy button. Yeah. I think that's outrageous. But you only had to look at Miami and what went on it there works. in terms of it. It works. Yeah, but they they were charging people huge amounts of money for, you know, what were you know normal general admission tickets. And what the news that's been coming out about what's going to happen in Las Vegas is making my, you know. Oh, tell me, go on then. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready, Steve. Tell me what's happening oh, in Las well, Vegas. Oh, well, they reckon that, uh, you know, normal a normal general admission price could be $2,000. Whoa, Okay. Wow. Okay, so only trumpets can afford that amongst us. Well, you've also dollars. I appreciate that um, Liberty bought a slab of real estate on the strip in Las Vegas in order to have the pit straights on, and they're going to turn it into some mm. kind of display for the rest of the year. Uh, and I suppose that costs them fifty million dollars or something. I suppose they're going to have to find that money. But holy moly, they're really ripping it out of 
um, you know, the fans, and I've got to put this question to you. How many people, at, at the moment, yes, DTS has meant the last two years there's been a huge increase in the popularity of the sport. Mm. How many people are going to still be there in five years' time after we've been ripped off gutless for five years? How many people are going to say, no, sorry, I'll find something else to spend my time and my money on? Is anyone willing to make uh, a case for the defence? No. no, okay, no, okay, Matt. I'll make a case. Okay, good, oh, good, good. Matt, Matt, no, 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 no. And no. please don't at Matt. He's making a, a measured case for the defence. I am indeed. And, and you have acceded to what I'm going to argue. To me, the crime of Silverstone, not, not to bang on too long about that, but is exactly the two things. One, how long it took. Mm. Two, the fact that the price changed after you clicked on it. I think both of those are verge on criminal from my point of view treatment of the fan i think it's fair to say i'm going to have a las vegas grand prix i have five thousand seats to sell and based on that i think i can get two thousand dollars a ticket and if i sell them all at that then i've made a huge amount of money and that's business i think if you're going to do that though you do have to ask yourself how am i going to invite people into my sport who cannot afford it. And that is what I worry about. And that is why your boxing analogy was absolutely spot on because we yeah. saw, we have seen this happen before and we don't want it to happen to F1. I wonder if people think that the boxing fan base suffered because it was one of the most popular sports in Britain with uh, Frank Bruno taking on Mike Tyson. Those were epic TV moments, but really people did tune out en masse. And I think the same thing has has sort of happened with cricket and we'll see the effects in the future with cricket, but we've seen the effects with boxing now. Is it a case of milking the cow, you know, too early? You know, you've got to feed the cow, you know, here, this, it feels like milking the cow with the pay to, to, to view on the, on the cable side. And when it comes to the, the, the stadium side, I, I, I understand why the prices are going to rise because it's the, the popularity has grown and, and I don't have some kind of moral, right to go and see Grand Prix because oh because I've been watching it from 1980 everyone has the same right to go and see the tracks and to see the races at the tracks therefore the demand is higher and that's how business works and and someone in our live chat said if you can't afford a Rolex you can't afford a Rolex and if one ha- watching F1 live has kind of become a Rolex so I can see the practical economic side but I reserve my right to feel super sad and almost grieve that that my home Grand Prix is out of reach, Matt. I don't think I'm ever going to watch my home Grand Prix again. That's the realisation I had. I love Silverstone. I love the racing that's there. I don't think I'm ever going to watch my home Grand Prix again. Yeah, well, and I feel for you mm. because this has always been the weird discontinuity of Formula One. It is a rich man's sport, rich person's sport always has been and yet somehow a whole bunch of people who aren't rich absolutely love it and the people at liberty if they're really the business geniuses they think they are are going to need to properly accommodate both sides of this in order to keep formula one where it is right now didn't Bernie readily admit that uh, he wasn't interested in, you know, the low-paying scum? He was only interested in, you know, the rich people? He must be sitting back and laughing yeah. right at the moment. 
Yeah, and look, look, the same thing, you know, football fans have had to put up with the same thing as well, where the pricing of the Premier League is just like shot through the roof. And, you know, I, I well, I'm a supporter of a, a lower league club, but even I have seen prices and gone, what? 25 quid to go and watch Colchester United versus Leighton Orient? That used to be £3.50, that did, in the family enclosure at Layer Road. Oh, speaking of things that used to be £3.50, now I'm paying six or £7 a pint in London. That's absolutely <laughs> ludicrous. But no, I, I want to say it's not just football either. It's rugby as well. I really, really wanted to go and watch Six Nations match um, this year. Anywhere other than uh, Twickenham, I maybe would have been able to do, but it would have you know, involved a six-hour uh, mm-hmm. trip to uh, Cardiff. If I wanted to just pop down the road to Twickenham, it would have cost me 700 or more quid. All right. Well, I think that brings us towards the end of the mailbag show. I've, in- I've enjoyed this show, but we didn't talk about like any current F1 stuff, like how the championship's going. It was all very kind of ethereal topics. And I don't mind that. You know, the core of the sport we covered with the, the cheating and what counts as cheating and what would we accept as cheating. I don't mind that. I don't, I don't mind spending some time talking about the the fan experience and how we consume it. I would love to have seen F1 cars in real life more than one, two, two times. Maybe I I should be forced to get on a plane and get in my car and go across continental Europe. The only thing is, Steve, uh, Steve, sorry. The only thing is, Chris, I do feel like over the last couple of years, I do need to avoid the the Orange Army just a little bit. So, (laughs) like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm sure Zanvoort, it's fun. I don't think I'm going to go and just tip up at the general admission at, yeah. at Zambor, though. Or, or at Spa. Or at Spa. Or in Austria. Yeah. Or the, the other ones that they all go uh, to. How's Hangara Ring? Is there a lot of... <laughs> uh, I think there's quite a few there as well, yeah. actually. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but right. uh, Hangara Ring, you get, uh, you get a good... So, so I mean, if, I, if you see me like suddenly like morphing into a Verstappen fan, it's just because I want <laughs> to get lower ticket prices at Zambor, Spa, Hangara Ring, etc. I mean... What I was going to say, you know, the other topics available. What we're going to talk about the driver market, where really we don't know what's going to happen for we could guess quite a stuff. while. Yeah, we just got to wait and see. Mad. Don't give away next week's show. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a teaser, Matt. <laughs> hey, look, there's lots of really interesting things uh, planned for Miss Apex podcast. Uh, we're going to be, I think, we're, we're experimenting quite a lot in the in the latter part of of 2022. So if you see some shows that you go, oh, that's a bit different. That's a little bit of a different format. We'd love your feedback, but we are trying out some different stuff. We've had, I think, from a podcast point of view, a very successful year. We've got a lot of good feedback. We've had a lot of great features. The Mailbag Show has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I think the magazine shows have gone down very well as well, where we have like three or four pre-recorded segments. And something I really want to drive towards, uh, which has been successful in our patron-only podcasts, is having a call-in element. Risky, I know. Some people are definitely going to tip up and just call me a turnip and and we'll just have to deal with that. But I definitely want to have some out and out call in shows. Uh, we we are experimenting with the technology and we, th- we think we're nearly there. Um, and then we will we will form a solid plan for 2023 and see what we like and whether we want to stick or twist with each part. A good thing as well, Spanos, mm-hmm. we have a proper off season as well this year because Do of the we? World Cup. Ah. Because, yeah, the season ends in November rather oh, than okay. a week before Christmas. So... We've got we've got that good content, that good content filler time. <laughs> so the thing with the off season is, the, uh, we are largely dictated and driven by the races and by the the news beat and the news content. 
when the off-season was longer, when we first started doing this, Matt and Chris, we used to have months. We used to have like three months to fill. And you go, oh, no, how are we going to fill that content? Actually, I think that was some of our most fun podcasting because we just got to explore all the different elements of F1 unencumbered by the current news beat or cycle or races. We agree. Good. Then we're definitely going to do that this off-season as well. Go and follow my panel at MattPT55. Go follow him on Twitter and search for Matt Trumpets on Facebook. Search for Chris at Chris on Racing on Twitter and TikTok. And Instagram. Oh, there we go. Go and follow him. You can look at pictures. He likes to take pictures of himself in a shower, but don't get too excited. He does it in a full uh, wetsuit covered in duck food. I don't know why. I don't know <laughs> like why a, you do that. A full parka jacket with yeah. the hood up as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and those scuba diving uh, flip-flop things. <laughs> yeah, fin- yeah, and yeah. a snorkel. Yeah, and a snorkel. I don't know why he does it, but it's good content. Steve Amy does not have social media, so you will have to go to his house in Brisbane. Yep. Okay. Yeah, that- yeah, come along. You're all welcome. Yeah. I, I, and I promise I won't send you any pictures of me in the shower. Who would want to see that? There's only you and Jono in Australia. If I was to organise some kind of Australian meetup with, with you and Jono as the hosts, I'm sure you could have a few jars with our Aussie listeners, and you could say I'm all sure. yeah. you, you could say all the naughty words you want, Steve. <laughs> How much does it cost to fly to Australia? I've, I've never been. I think it's like eight thousand um. pounds. Well, it's fairly expensive. Mm. I mean, it's been a long time since I've flown out out of here too. But it would be a you know two to two and a half thousand dollars at least. Yeah, maybe it's uh, next on our checklist of family adventures. But wherever well, we'll <laughs> wherever we see you next, guys, uh, we hope that you all stay with Mr. Apex Podcast. Leave us an iTunes review. Consider being a patron supporter. Uh, look in the show notes in YouTube and your app. And you will see where you can follow everyone. And I will implore you, please, please, please go and check out what we're doing with our iRacing tournament. It's a great broadcast with professional commentary. We've literally got professional Steve Amy doing all our broadcasts. It looks and feels like a real race event. And, and it's just a fantastic community. And I hope people will get involved and check that out. And professional Chris Stevens. I, mean, oh, I yeah. really like it all the attentions on me (laughs) for a little bit hey let chris stevens commentary wash over you and also uh, just see the fact that i'm fourth out of 50 amongst a lot faster drivers because i'm kind of old and i just keep on trucking while everyone crashes keep on trucking keep on racing spanners it's okay you stick at your pace everyone else will fall down and it's worked i'm currently fourth that won't last but go and watch my rise to fourth place in the championship but wherever we see you next work hard Be kind and have fun. This was Missed Apex Podcast. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello 
Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.